Today we're here to talk about conman Norman Baker. He has been described as brilliant from a very early age and didn't disappoint his also brilliant parents when he invented the calliope. This was a variation of the organs that were popular at the time. In most cases, if you're not familiar with how a calliope sounds, think of the music you'd hear at the giant carousels with the beautiful ornate horses or elegant sleds. Yes, we have Norman to thank for that. He would go on to be a broadcaster, an entrepreneur, a shyster, and a bit of a murderer. His parents must be so proud. And with over 400 deaths under his belt, he is not listed as a serial killer. The story behind one of the most cruelest of con artists got away with murder again and again and again. Welcome. My name is Elizabeth Bougeret, and I'm that person that, when studying the many facets of history, likes to peek behind the curtain, investigate the hidden passages, drop into the rabbit hole, or dare to walk in the shadows because we all know that's where the good stories can be found. Take a listen then to discover what dark or peculiar pieces of American history can be found this week from my bag of bones. It's difficult to comprehend from our vantage point, having the internet at our fingertips to investigate every little thing, that way back in the 1930s, people were desperate, as they are today, to find a cure for the exact same cancer that is still taking lives in these modern times. It seems far-fetched to think that people would allow not a total stranger, because they heard his voice on the radio daily, but to be so desperate for a cure that they would risk their life savings believing that Norman Baker could have this debilitating disease eradicated from their bodies. But I'm also sure if you told the patients from the 1930s that you were going to inject their bodies with toxic chemical materials that promised to stop cancer cells from growing, but that are going to make them feel even worse before they feel better, they would have scoffed at that and probably walked away. Their life savings intact, and yet, here we are almost a hundred years later offering just that as a treatment. In the early 1900s, a teenaged Norman Baker was fascinated with the craft of mental suggestion. He was curious about how touring vaudevillian mentalist Professor Flint would rake in hundreds of dollars by presenting a show claiming he could not only see into the future but also read minds. He decided he needed a piece of that action. Instead of going head-to-head with the master professor of the day, Baker decided to compliment the industry with a female fortune teller. He called her Madam Pearl Tangley. He was currently traveling with his own troupe under the name of Charles Welch. Supplementing his income, he tapped into printed resources. He sold magazines and supplements and even correspondence opportunities so you can learn to be a mentalist by sending in 25 cents. and. If you act now, we'll include a complete list of dreams. It was beautiful, and it worked. For about ten years, Baker, under the name of Welch, replacing his Madame Tangley's as needed, traveled the country booking theaters and performing to thousands of spectators. He eventually married one of his Pearl Tangley's. When he grew tired of this, he returned home to his beloved Muscatine, Iowa, to create the Calliophone which became known as the Calliope. 
According to Alvin Winston's biography on Baker, he writes, quote, Baker desired a musical instrument to be used for outdoor advertising purposes. There were none on the market except hand organs and electric bell instruments, which later had been played to death and offended the aesthetic ear by being more of the noisemaker than a musical instrument. No doubt the presence of a wife who was a pianist and a father-in-law who was an organist and more spurred Baker with his inferiority complex to demonstrate his aptitude in music, though he had no musical education. Besides, in Muscatine, his brother still operated the machine shop which Norman Baker had an interest in. So Norman Baker loafed around the machine shop and pondered and tinkered and suddenly produced what he named at once the Tangley Air Calliope, played with air pressure instead of steam, end quote. And with the new world of radio broadcasting exploding onto the airwaves, he immediately saw the potential. He was intrigued by this newfangled thing called radio and wasted no time jumping on the bandwagon. In November of 1925, he was the proud owner of KTNT, nestled in the heart of the Midwest in Muscatine, Iowa. Known as the Naked Truth Broadcast, it became Baker's platform to spew out whatever thoughts and ideas and conspiracy theories that came to him. It wasn't long before he found himself the recipient of several lawsuits, but he, too, loved to dole out libel lawsuits and became quite good at it, treating it like a sport. Practice makes perfect. He expanded his arena with his own TNT magazine, which grew to a full publishing company, Progressive Publishing, who distributed the daily Midwest Free Press. He ran a correspondence art school, a mail-order business, and had a round-in politics where he ran for governor of Iowa, and he created a tour bus company in which he could regale the guests with calliope music and his latest thoughts on whatever he felt might stir the pot. Looking to start a verbal altercation with just about anyone, he put his flag in the ground around TB testing for cattle, vaccinations, cookware being made with aluminum, and adding fluoride to water. He would tell all who would listen that these things were causing cancer. He was anti-Semitist, anti-Catholic, and anti-Democrat. One of his tirades attacked the physicians who specialize with children. Author Junkie wrote in his book, Quacks and Crusaders, quote, Baker also invoked horrific images of physicians as pedophiles, asking KTNT listeners why doctors vaccinated young children in the leg rather than the arm. Is it because they like to feel the legs of these innocent little girls, he asked. Is it not a fact that many of these men use their profession as an excuse to fondle and gaze upon the nude parts of innocent children? End quote. Meanwhile, a doctor, Charles Ozias, over in neighboring Kansas City, was discovered to be curing cancer by injecting his patients with a brown liquid in or around the affected area. He was making so much money, he was on the verge of opening a huge hospital to handle the influx of new clients. Also, Barker was teaming up with a Dr. Bearwald. This physician, who also called Iowa home, was making a name for himself in the varicose veins medical genre. In 1929, they created the Tangley Institute for the Treatment of Varicose Veins and Leg Ulcers, using injections at the site. They promoted, quote, We have no medicine to send you. 
Our treatment for varicose veins and leg ulcers is done at the Institute. We will arrange good room and board in private homes at low expense. You need only stay one week, ten days or perhaps two weeks depending on the severity of the case. Requires about ten minutes of treatment, no pain, hospital or operations. No interference from your daily business. Treatment consists of painless injection. This wonderful discovery is credited to our attending physician who has successfully been treating these cases for over six years. You need not delay writing for appointments. Come anytime. End quote. This type of cure fed into Baker's ranting on his radio show. He believed that the medical community was nothing more than quote-unquote educated fools. He would rail across the airways that MD stood for more dough and that the AMA was actually the Amateur Meat Cutters Association. He found his angle was boasting a cure without any surgery or operation and made sure all the world knew it. His advertisements consistently bellowed, quote, We do not use knife, x-ray, or radium, end quote. In November of 1929, he doubled down in the medical industry following Dr. Charles Ozias's lead. He opened the Baker Muscatine Cancer Hospital, later known as the Baker Institute. He would take Ozias's recipe, add a touch of carbolic acid, and whisper conspiratorially that it was the secret cure he went to great lengths to acquire from a Southern American witch doctor. Side note, the chemical phenol which is another name for carbolic acid, is nothing anyone should be playing around with. This is the stuff that's used to make detergents, herbicides, nylon, and epoxies, just to name a few. All things that are meant to be outside of the body, not injected inside the body. With his new formula and his new institute, he hung out his unlicensed clapboard for business. He would inject his patients with his fantastic formula and charge them fantastic rates. His flamboyant advertising, radio announcements, and articles in his own TNT magazine would claim that he would treat five people diagnosed with cancer for free to test out this new, amazing treatment. The magazine would claim the patients experienced dramatic results. Amazingly, all five were improving. He would write, quote, Cancer is curable. Cures positively being made while medical trust refuses recognition because it affords them no financial gain, end quote. What the public didn't know, and what Baker wasn't about to tell them, was that all five died. The editor of the Journal of the American Medical Association wrote in the April edition, quote, the viciousness of Mr. Baker's broadcasting lies not in what he says about the American Medical Association, but in the fact that he induces sufferers from cancer who might have some chance for their lives if seen early and properly treated to resort to his nostrum, end quote. Next, by using the business building cues from Ozias, he also sought out Harry Hoxie. Hoxie, in the cancer-curing realm as well, was already up to his neck in arguments with the medical community, adamant that he had the natural cure for cancer. They made a brilliant pair. Except, Baker really didn't care if the cures worked. Hoxie was insistent that his really did work. Hoxie and Baker operated the Baker Institute in Muscatine, Iowa. They had 100 beds, hired physicians from diploma mills, and told the world that they were curing cancer. 
Feeling pressure from the AMA, knowing that they were doing an investigation, Baker staged a public demonstration in May of 1929. It was attended by upwards of 40,000 people. Everyone wanted to see what Baker was up to next. He didn't disappoint. When he lined up former patients to speak to the crowds of how they were healed by his painless surgery-free treatment. And then they performed a brain surgery on a man named Mandis Johnson who was said to have had a brain tumor. The story goes that he cut into Johnson's head and poured the magical formula into the open wound. Johnson was awake for the entire procedure. As the bandages were being applied, Baker would turn to the crowd in his Grand Circus Barker fashion and announce, Cancer is cured. Harry Hoxley eventually parted ways, throwing several lawsuits on his exit, and Baker responded in kind, a practice that would follow the pair for years down the road. Side note, Hoxley spent the rest of his life believing in his natural cancer cure. He would be forced from state to state and finally to Mexico in order to offer his cure to those who believed. In his book, You Don't Have to Die, he wrote in the 1950s, he writes, quote, His therapy aims to restore physiological normalcy to disturbed metabolism throughout the body with emphasis on purgation to help carry away wastes from the tumors he believed his herbal mixtures caused to necrotize, end quote. The AMA publicly called Baker out as a quack, in which Norman Baker responded with a $500,000 lawsuit for libel and defamation. There were no former patients that would come forward to vouch for him. His former employees didn't turn on him, but they weren't much help either. And at the end of the day, his circus barker tactics would find no place in a court of law. He lost. And because he was so vocal in his opinions, besides helping Hoover to win in the 1928 presidential election, no one else thought he should be allowed to have so much bandwidth. In 1931, his radio station was closed down. By April of 1932, Baker was again in court, losing the battle for both his cancer cure and his run as governor. It is noted that the Baker Institute had brought in over $440,000 in the year of 1930 alone. To avoid serving the sentence, Baker fled to Mexico. Not to be deterred, he promptly learned from one of his medical fraud peers he could build a radio station in Mexico and the U.S. government couldn't do a thing about it. So in 1933, XENT went live. That would later change, thanks actually to the same peer that gave him the idea, another con physician by the name of John Brinkley. He'd be the guy that gained notoriety for transplanting goat testicles for human ones. Some have mentioned that Baker opened another clinic while he was there, but I couldn't find the proof of it. So he may or may not have been killing in Mexico, too. After a few years, his longing for his home country and state called him back again. He returned to the States and, after negotiating a small fine to be paid and served one day sentence for practicing medicine without a license, he was welcomed back home once more. Done and done. He checked off all the boxes to be allowed to once again get his name on the ballot. This time it was for the Senate in 1936. Who wants someone labeled as a quack making decisions for the people? Not Iowa. And add insults to injury. 
1937, he was back in court for shipping gramophone records to Mexico to be used on his radio station, but it was later turned over in appeals. He needed a new strategy. His own hometown and even state no longer wanted him. Hello, hello. Sorry to interrupt our episode, but I wanted to do a shout out for Bag of Bones supporting company, Lumi Deodorant. Lumi's creator, Shannon Klingman, broke the mold on deodorant models that have been in place and unchanged for the last 100 years. She discovered that aluminum, which is a staple in deodorants, was not only not helping, but could be harmful. She completely broke down the problems of body odor and rebuilt a better solution. She came up with Lumi. Her all-natural option of dealing with body odors from any part of the body stops odors before they happen by neutralizing the odor-causing bacteria that can be found on every human in every crevice. Lumi is made from naturally derived ingredients and is also aluminum-free, baking soda-free, and cruelty-free so you can feel confident using it even on sensitive skin. Plus, it's clinically proven to control odor for 72 hours. So, if you haven't yet, be sure to give Lumi a try by clicking the link in the show notes. Or, if you're already an avid fan, please consider using the Bag of Bones link to feed your Lumi habit as it helps curb the expenses of producing the show. Oh, speaking of which, I need to get back at it. Hidden in the valleys of the mountains of Arkansas, okay, maybe less mountain, more giant hills, a spring was discovered. Its pure water was offering healing properties to those who came to it and drank from it and used it to wash their wounded parts of their body. The spring may be less magical than more clean. So anytime you replace lead-based filthy water with clean, pure water, you're going to see a positive effect in the body. But the good people of Eureka Springs opted to go with magical. Soon, others would flock to the area searching for some healing to their various afflictions. It didn't take long for some to turn a profit on the healing powers of the springs. And even today, Eureka Springs, Arkansas is known as a place to find healing, spiritual, physical, and even metaphysical. With its serene landscapes, rolling hills, and little shops, it's a place where guests long to return to, and apparently are hesitant to leave. If we believe the hundreds of thousands of reports on ghost sightings in and around the area, but that's for another episode. The Smithsonian Magazine writes, quote, This has always been a boom-and-bust town, and a hideout, and a rest cure, a place to lay low or live high. Bank robbers, bootleggers, railroad magnates, and cat house madams all made their fortunes here. Gangbusters from Chicago kept their hotels and roadhouses and nightclubs busy after World War II. And when the local economy swooned in the 1970s, hippies saved the place its stories, gingerbread homes, and it became an artist's oasis. It remains so, end quote. On May 20th, 1886, the doors opened on the most luxurious accommodations this area had ever seen. Around $294,000 was spent on building the Crescent Hotel, which values at around $9 million in today's costs. The Eureka Springs Times Echo would report, quote, The magnificent structure was then furnished in the most exquisite manner. It's lighted with Edison lamps, furnished with electric bells, heated with steam and open grates, and has a hydraulic elevator. It is truly a showplace of today's conveniences. 
By the time Baker came to Eureka Springs, the Crescent had lived through several transformations. It had set vacant during the Depression, and in 1937, Baker was able to acquire it for a mere $40,000, which is only around 800000 in today's pricing. He had his crew completely remodel the Grand Old Lady of the Ozarks. He painted his office, his penthouse, the Grand Lobby, purple. This was his signature color. It was said he would always wear a purple shirt with a different shade of purple for his tie. In the spring and summer, he sported a white suit. He promised his new community big things, and he delivered. More people, more tourism, more shopping in the stores, buying gas, staying in hotels. The undertakers got a boost in business as well, but we don't need to talk about that. He was ready to open the doors of his brand new Baker Hospital. The mayor and the Chamber of Commerce threw Norman Baker a welcome party. He brought his entire staff of diploma mill doctors and his 140 patients from the Iowa Institute to his new facility to kick things off. He set to work right away creating his brochures, sending them out to the world via post, and waited for patients to come rolling in. He spent over a million dollars on his new ad campaign. Where sick folks get well, the pamphlets promised. Fresh air and crystal healing waters. One big family living in a mansion just like plain folks. End quote. On his radio stations, he preached about the abuse of medical community, how they would chop and slice their patients when there was no need. He touted that cancer was not curable through operations, radium, or x rays. Luckily, his cure required none of those things no cutting, no toxic radium just a series of painless injections at the site of the cancer, and his magical formula would eat away the cancer and never harm the surrounding tissue or organs. Now, thanks to Norman Baker, the good people of America had an alternative to being carved up like Christmas ham. But there was just one problem. His magical cure wasn't curing anything. It was only giving patients a false hope and a slow, painful death. People flocked to the Crescent and the newly opened Baker Hospital. They were complaining of tumors, had been diagnosed with cancer. In fact, any ailment they presented with, they were welcome at the Crescent. And they continued to come, many signing over their life savings. He offered exams for $10 per person, payable in cash, and in this examination, lo and behold, the patient was diagnosed with a life-or-death sentence of the ailment they presented with. But fear not, the Baker Hospital is here. So unscrupulous was this man, he even exploited the death of his own mother to portray trust to those reaching out to him. Baker's mother died of cancer in November of 1921. He would use this by printing his business letterhead to read, quote, Baker Hospital, founded by Norman Baker, whose mother's untimely death created interest in life extension, end quote. Baker promises them life and hope. He smiles and greets them, inviting them into his Ozark paradise to relax, that he would take it from here, once they signed on the dotted line, of course. And regardless of the patient's ailments, they all received the same treatment. Injections of one of his formulas four times a day, except Sundays. According to podcaster Trey Youngdahl, the doctors would, quote, refer to themselves as machine guns since they gave so many shots in succession, end quote. 
paranoia took over his life. After speaking out against everyone and anyone for so many years, you can almost understand why. He had his office sealed off in bulletproof glass and kept two submachine guns within easy reach. He also was said to have built several tunnels in order to be able to escape in case any of the AMA enemies launched an attack. There are rumors, too, that there are tunnels that run from the basement morgue and lead out to either the street or directly to an undertaker. The hotel owners dispute the rumors, but several of the employees, past and present, say that it's true. There are tunnels everywhere. There was also a section of one of the floor's hallways that was closed off and made soundproof. This wing was labeled the psychiatric ward and was always kept locked from the outside. The patients who weren't getting any better would be sent there. Delaney R. Bartlett, a journalist, wrote for Medium, quote, Another thing the local workforce noticed. Patients were often declared cured even when they were clearly in worse shape than when they checked in. It was later revealed that these patients would return home only to die within days. Some didn't even make it that far. They died on the train home. Rumors began to circulate among the locals that Baker was conducting medical experiments on patients in the basement morgue, end quote. But the people kept coming. They kept coming. They kept paying. And they kept dying. But no one would stop him. One state representative from Arkansas lobbied for a congressional investigation into his claims prior to his purchase of the Crescent, but he was apparently outvoted. The promise of steady income to a town that is dependent on tourism after years of financial drought, it's not hard to see why he was silenced. It was reported that the Baker Hospital was bringing in over $500,000 per year. And from that, he would skim off the top and have his personal secretary, Thelma Yount, take it to his safety deposit box in the town of Nuevo Laredo, where he lived while he was exiled in Mexico. He had over $1 million in his account there, but was never charged for embezzlement. Smithsonian Magazine writes, quote, In the leanest years of our history, he doesn't hide the money he grifts from the sick and the hopeless. He broadcasts it. He brags about it. He is loud with it. He is the picture of vulgar American excess, end quote. Not that I would ever want to have to rank the worst kind of serial killer, but it takes a special kind of depravity to stomach watching someone slowly die a long and painful death while seeing them day in and day out and charging them every cent they owned for the very treatment that was bringing them closer to their death, all for a profit. To me, he is, in every sense of the word, a serial killer. And yet he is never classified as one. He is labeled with conman, or swindler, which seems mild and almost laughable compared to the actual crimes he was committing. A conman evokes the image of a barker at a carnival that tricks you into thinking that you can win the giant purple teddy bear for your sweetheart for only 75 cents. You end up, quote-unquote, winning the teddy bear for a cool $20. But you almost go to a carnival knowing that you're going to lose some serious cash. Not condoning it, but your buddies are going to tease you for being swindled. Better luck next time, he winks at you and your four-foot-tall teddy bear as you walk away with your girlfriend completely swooning. A serial killer, however, steals life for no other reason than he can. 
Whenever Baker was challenged, he would repeat over and over again that they were curing cancer patients daily. When asked about those that didn't make it, he would look at them squarely and say, they didn't get here soon enough. He never got his hands dirty, of course, but he knew that after the reporters and the cameras went away and the hallways were dark and the patients all tucked in their beds because no one was allowed out of their room after 9 p.m., that at precisely 11 o'clock p.m., the dead would be rolled from the psych ward on gurneys and taken to the morgue and placed in the cooler until they could be disposed of. He knew his treatment wasn't working. He knew he was responsible for killing upwards of 400 people. That is a serial killer. He may not have injected them himself, which he would constantly state so he could not be said of practicing medicine without a license again, but he knew. The Crescent Hotel History page states this, quote, The common grifter swindles people out of their money, but only a monster would do so at the cost of their last chance at survival, end quote. After a 10-year run making money from the weak and trusting, seven letters sent through the mail advertising his miracles would be the thing to slow him down. September 1st, 1939, Norman Baker was arrested for mail fraud. That's how they got him. The brochures. The trial was held in January of 1940 in Little Rock, Arkansas. After a three-week trial, he was sentenced to four years at Leavenworth Prison, in which he only served three years and seven months. He was found guilty on all seven counts of mail fraud. The victims received no compensation. The families received no compensation. $4,000. That was all he was fined. $4,000. He got to keep the rest. The thousands and thousands of dollars. He, of course, appealed the verdict, and even his very expensive lawyers couldn't overturn the decision. The Court of Appeals responded that Baker's cancer cure was a, quote, pure hoax, end quote. The U.S. Post Office Department in Little Rock, Arkansas, would surmise in a memo of January 25, 1940, that Norman Baker had, quote, defrauded cancer sufferers out of approximately $4 million, end quote. It went on to say, quote, the fraudulent treatment hastened the death of sufferers in most cases, and the sentence of four years which Baker received and the fine of $4,000 was an extremely light penalty under the circumstances, end quote. The senior associate wardens report that Baker would say in his inmate statement, quote, I am not guilty. They have never proved anything in the indictment. We figure that this is a railroading proposition. It is my opinion that the jury was fixed and influenced. We have hired private detectives to look into the matter. It is believed that whiskey and women were made available to the jurors. We were railroaded by the American Medical Association, who have been after us for years. End quote. Stephanie Spence writes in the History of the Crescent Hotel, quote, In the introduction of Norman's bought-and-paid-for biography, Doctors, Dynamiters, and Gunmen, author Alvin Winston wrote, this is an inspiration book for the young and old, a fact story of how a man fought his enemies, how he faced gunmen, dynamiters, and enemy doctors, how he fought the medical racket, the radio trust, the aluminum trust, and others. He did it for you. There has never been a book prepared so carefully. This makes it the most important book ever written. Read the life story of Norman Baker, the greatest one-man battle ever fought. This was how Norman Baker wanted the world to see him. 
as a crusader who fought to protect the common man against exploitation. But behind the mask of humanitarianism was a man who leached off the sick and dying to make hundreds of thousands of dollars. End quote. Life calls to people. Life will persist until there are no more options. This was the sweet spot that Norman Baker preyed upon. Those who were desperate. Those who were willing to believe in miracles. Those willing to pay for a miracle of their own. Meet the man who was paid millions of dollars to assist people fighting for their life to reach the end of their battle. Norman Glenwood Baker was released early from prison on July 19, 1944, and not learning a thing, he promptly went back to his home state and attempted to start over again. But luckily, they refused to give him any leeway, going so far as to strongly discourage him from staying in Iowa. He ended retiring to Florida on a three-story yacht formerly owned by a railroad baron. I'm sure he was suffering. He died at the age of 75 from cirrhosis of the liver. Six college students were hired to carry his casket. He was buried in his white suit, purple shirt, and lavender tie in the Greenwood Cemetery in Muscatine, Iowa. Smithsonian Magazine writes, quote, The sharp historical sense of dread and of pain and of loss can be overwhelming if you open yourself to it, because worse than any monster is a man like you or me, weak, greedy, unaccountable, selling hope to the hopeless. If you checked into the Baker Hospital, your room holds everything you ever lost. End quote. Thank you for joining me this week for another episode of the Bag of Bones podcast. I appreciate it so much when you let others know about the podcast. It really helps to build our community and lets the platforms know that we are a podcast worth sharing. Bag of Bones has shown some real growth here recently, and I have you to thank for that. Keep leaving awesome reviews and keep sharing. Awesome people just know other awesome people. If you want to reach out, you can find me at the Bag of Bones podcast on both Instagram and on Facebook. I'm Elizabeth Bougerie. Until next week, then. Bag of Bones is created and hosted by Elizabeth Bougere, produced by the Ragtag Network and History Revisited, music by Johnny Reed. To learn more about the show, visit elizabethbougere.com. For more podcasts from the Ragtag Network, visit their website at www.ragtagnetwork.com. Copyrights by Elizabeth Bougere and DCT Enterprises.